Well, welcome back to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm your second reserve host, Tim Cutler. Daniel Beswick is deep in men's T20 World Cup action, working behind the scenes for the ICC. Joining me here very early morning in Reykjavik, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm well. I'm very well. I've been watching some uh, cricket way back in Australia, thanks to the wonders of uh, a VPN and uh, and a friend's KO subscription. So that's been fun, getting up very, very early. Uh, It's basically the worst possible time period uh, for for Europe. So, um, yeah, not the best, but... Good to follow all this exciting cricket. Yeah, this podcast is sponsored by the Emerging Cricket VPN service coming to you soon. And for the very first time, long-time contributor, first-time caller, Ooh. hot off a trip. Well, I can't really say hot off a trip to Hobart, but not long home after a trip to Hobart. Been writing for EmergingCricket.com for almost three years now, or well, maybe about three years now. Daniel, hey, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be the replacement Daniel and the, um, <laughs> and the trio for today. So I've been back for about 24 hours from Hobart. It was not not too hot over there, but I actually enjoyed getting out of Auckland's heat a bit and down to some, some colder weather, although the rain that was threatened consistently for many days only really showed up once and on a, game, on a day where there was no cricket. So it wasn't too bad over there. And I guess life is all about perspective, isn't it? Talking about getting out of the Auckland heat and to a slightly cooler Hobart, where uh, there are some of us that are sitting in the balmy tropics, although it isn't too balmy in Vanuatu at the moment. It's been raining for about 36 hours straight. So we've had leakages at the uh, Vanuatu Cricket Ground offices and uh, roads are flooding. So not too enjoyable. Um T20 World Cup. First round is done and dusted. I don't think I'm going to go with too much of a summary yet, Daniel, because you've made the commitment. You've you've flown all the way from Auckland to Hobart. You've made video diaries every day that you and Nate Hayes have worked together getting out onto Instagram. We haven't had any show calls notices from the ICC yet for video taping anything within the within the surrounds of the stadium, which is a plus for us. We saw, funnily enough, two teams from the British Isles playing very well in those conditions with Scotland just limping through and not not getting through the next round and Ireland knocking off the might of the Windies but unfortunately Zimbabwe beating Scotland to go through. Daniel from go to woe tell us about Group B down in Hobart. Yeah so it was uh, four teams as you say Ireland, Scotland, Zimbabwe, West Indies at Belrive Oval. The first four games were all played on the same strip then they moved over and it was quite variable I think we found the the conditions even within the same day and Hobart has this kind of storied history of being a hunting ground for medium paced trundlers uh, the, the famous test matches of past you know the, the terror of Doug Bracewell and Vernon Philander <laughs> that Australia has now been terrified into never playing there again and so you'd think that you know in the lead up to this round a lot of talk with Ireland and Scotland was with their seam attack and it being perhaps a bit slow a bit one dimensional but if anything then you'd see that being nullified by the fact that Hobart has a bit of assistance for it and that that was kind of the case in a way but um, obviously Scotland didn't get through although Ireland did and I think Ireland's success was almost more off the back of their batting than anything the seamers did in particular but in terms of the experience um, a whole week there Sunday to Sunday for me I wasn't there uh, well recording this now there have been further games in the main stage uh, so I'm not going to every single game there but for being there the entire group 
with the same four teams and the same four groups of fans was actually really interesting. I know that we all glad to be seeing the back of this first round, uh, but it actually was quite a unique experience that will not happen again, I don't think, hopefully. Um, but it was from a Scotland perspective, for those who don't follow my writing, I lived in Scotland and have a soft spot for the Scottish team, although I don't necessarily expect them to to get through it was really big highs and really quite low lows because the first game was such a resounding victory against the West Indies and it almost felt like they were going to coast it from there and even halfway through the second game against Ireland it still felt like they were going to coast it and Ireland came out of nowhere to win that remarkably and then carried on that form into their final game whereas Scotland obviously carried on their struggles into the final game going against Zimbabwe who played fantastically I think and really across the four teams I have to say that Sikanda Raza was just levels above anyone else there uh, bat, ball and field uh, he, I don't know if it was quite apparent for those watching on TV but he made some ridiculous stops in the field that really you go oh who's done that oh it's Sikanda again you know he doesn't seem to get out of the game and from a Scottish perspective, when that that catch was taken, that amazing catch that I think it was Brad Wheel took to remove their third wicket, there wasn't an awful lot of celebration because we knew who was coming. So great round for the cricket, I think, and um, you know, huge congratulations to Zimbabwe for getting through as well as Ireland. They really put a lot of heart into it and the Zimbabwe support were massive by far the biggest supporters there yeah, it's funny and Nick I'll bring you in on this because I know we've sort of spoken a little bit about it offline in that the kind of the biggest non-story or at least a story that isn't being reported is how good Zimbabwe you've been considering their lead-up matches against lower ranked full members and high ranked associates and then from to come through this impressively in Group B, again, in conditions that are not going to be very familiar to them. Yes, of course, a lot of them have been playing around the world and Blessing, for example, has played county cricket recently. But, you know, are they the biggest story that no one's talking about? Yeah, I I don't know. I think people are sort of stuck in this mentality of Zimbabwe being a mess, whereas, I mean, (laughs) you know, their, their previous coach, Rajput, sort of didn't help uh, with that, given his, um, I don't know, absent father style of coaching, you might say. But um, yeah, the the turnaround on Dave Horton has been remarkable. And, and we discussed this in the previews that Horton is the kind of guy who doesn't actually think that Zimbabwe's best days are behind them. And so that, I think, has seeped into this group who, who thinks that they've got a lot of upside. And, you know, we see that. And again, this is the, the cruelty of, um, you know, emerging cricket is that we, we love seeing all these teams do well. And it's it's great to see Zimbabwe back at a World Cup and, and you know, we're all we're all very happy about that. And you know, you see the cheering and the celebrations back home in, in Harare and you know, this is this is great for Zimbabwe and for cricket. But on the flip side, you really want Scotland to go through and, and build on the success from last year and it just even build on the success of, of thrashing the West Indies in the first match and, and really setting up that, that stunning first day with two big upsets. And yeah, so yeah, I I guess the highs and lows aren't just for Daniel over in Hobart, they're they're for all of the people watching on i mean yeah sikanda raza just ridiculous he's ascended to another plane of existence i think in in cricket terms he, he just so much better than everyone else on any other team in, in that first round you know striking at over 170 averaging over 40 also picked up five wickets at a at a sub six economy rate you know you can't really do much better than that 
and um, he's really become the heart and soul of this team. It was interesting that uh, Sean Williams had a terrible first round and, and did basically nothing with the bat. Got in, you know, a couple of handy overs here and there, but we were saying that Williams was going to be sort of the one of the, the, the three kind of engine rooms of that uh, Zimbabwean batting, but yeah, Raza <laughs> sort of carried everything all on his own. Bit of support from from Irvine who hit a fifty, but uh, yeah, basically it was the it was the Raza show, and and fair enough. Yeah, it definitely felt like that in the final game. I think everyone and from both the Scotland Scotland lineup and the Zimbabwean top order was struggling. It was everyone was going at maybe a hundred and ten uh, strike rate tops, and then when Raza comes in, he's just hitting it so much cleaner than everyone else. And even yeah, Craig Irvine did well at the top, but he was still only scoring at a run of ball and was really struggling with timing and at the back end of the Scotland innings they were really trying to force boundaries and just some couldn't get it off the middle it had really slowed up a lot which is funny considering earlier that day Andy Belburney had made it seem incredibly easy to bat on but it, it definitely felt like he was just the difference for them and I think in the game they lost against the West Indies he got a bit cocky and and tried a bit too hard because he had just absolutely smashed one into the grass banks and then you know tried it again and got out and I think that possibly was the difference in the game that they lost as well. Yeah, just seeing with Raza and and seeing how he's had this sort of late career revival in a um you know his long and winding trajectory to the the Zimbabwean team and and to to this position and it'll be interesting to see how much longer he can maintain it. You, you think back to guys who've had you know really hot streaks of form, you know Steve Smith a couple of years ago, people like that. You know, what happens when Raza doesn't perform at this completely ridiculous level? Where where does Zimbabwe find the the runs and the wickets that he's been contributing? But you know that's a that's a problem for tomorrow because at the moment we're just celebrating. Uh, Zimbabwe but uh, yeah I guess that would be kind of a, a one question mark that, that's sort of hanging over the, the Zimbabwean team at the moment. Yeah I do I do think it's fascinating I can't think of too many players like obviously players have form boosts and you know individual seasons or years where they become very good but to do it this late in the, the career at you know age 36 and also after kind of being a bit of a semi bits and pieces journeyman player for such a long time he's had good bouts of form but you know there's nothing like scoring two consecutive unbeaten ODI hundreds and then whatever this is that he's doing right now and it really looks like he's a completely different player but obviously he is age is not on his side so it's not gonna not gonna last forever um and i also think that they are perhaps a bit reliant on him obviously a fantastic bowling unit and i think if they you know if those guys can continue to to bowl well as well they maybe won't even need uh, good batting performances but it does the, the loss does show that without him going big they weren't able to get the total big enough and um, I think for for the second round they do need to find some more runs from that top order as well as keep up the bowling performances well yeah I mean you look at (laughs) he hit eight sixes in that first round and uh, the rest of the Zimbabwean team hit three between them so that kind of tells you all all you need to know just on the bowling though what, what did you make of the Zimbabwean lineup because there's a few guys in there who I've been kind of a bit. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say down on, but you know, Tendai Chitara, who's. I just feel like sometimes he's a bit pedestrian, but he ended up bowling very well throughout the tournament. Do you think that was the conditions helping him? Because on the other hand, blessing Mazarabani, who's you know their star seam bowler, he went for runs. He did go for runs, but I think that I, I actually felt like he was 
getting chances. He was bowling well, and then they were just finding a way to get him away. Um, Tatara did get the way better figures, especially in that game against Scotland, I think. And that, to me, looked like the fact that this pitch continued to grip a bit. I think the the moisture in the air, it was always threatening to rain, and it didn't feel like if it was ba- if it was going well with the bat, it was ever going to last particularly long. And some of the teams cottoned on to this well, and I think you just pull your lengths a bit back a bit and you cause cross-bat shots to float up a bit because it sticks in the pitch a little bit. And some of the bowlers managed to, to pick up on that. And I think in the first game, actually, when uh, Scotland beat the West Indies, I think in the early overs when Scotland were bowling, they weren't they were trying to pitch it up and were getting hit a bit and adjusted quite quickly. And I think Chitara did, did that quite well, you know, stuck it into the pitch a bit and got it to grip because despite the fact that there were some big sixes hit, it did feel like you were never fully in on this pitch. It was changing quite quickly and there were periods in which you wouldn't see a shot out of the middle of the bat for five or six overs straight. You know, I look at George Munsey's two 50s, which took him, you know, there were points in both of those innings where it looked like he was hitting it cleanly and then 10 minutes later he was just not hitting it at all and so it was I think the the bowlers who did the best were the ones who you know registered that fact and I think adjusted their lengths and their speeds a bit using cutters as well and using some slower deliveries just to get a bit more grip and uh, hopefully force the false shots because a lot of the wickets did come from you know return catches and and square batted shots that went straight up so bearing that in mind you know you watched all three match days and and six matches was this a good wicket and and field for for t20 national cricket or not I think it was. I, I think that I'm always a fan of games in which the bowler's in it, and I think that in T20 sometimes it can be quite, you know, you've you've seen the pitch, you know how it plays, and I think the fact that teams had to adjust their tactics even within a 20-over innings was, you know, good to watch, and, and it was enjoyable, and really you never quite knew how a full match was going to play out. So I think it was a really good pitch, and I also think it's it's a reasonably sizable oval as well, and it, it isn't just one where you can you know hit, hit for the, the fences and try and get out of it so I thought that it was it was a really good pitch to play on and I actually think using you know the used pitches doing two two games on a day was great not just from you know the pitch perspective in terms of having a bit of difference and a used pitch later on in the day but um, from the fan perspective it was actually great to see a lot of fans coming over for one game and, and sticking around just for the other one because it's you might as well you know there was a decent kind of atmosphere to the late night games even though some of them did go very late I think the first game finished at 11 15 p.m something but um though it was it was a great ground and it was the crowds weren't as good as you'd like obviously um but I think that in general I think it's a really good ground for this and I think this is the kind of series or competition or round that a place like Hobart is perfect for because I saw some comments on Reddit from Australians about the the main round saying a few Australians are not aware it's on. You're definitely aware it's on if you're in Hobart. It's it's everywhere. Yeah, it's interesting. It doesn't seem like the local organising committee has done a particularly good job or, you know, whoever's in charge of marketing because, yeah, I just compare it to the Women's World Cup in 2020 when, I, and I guess a big part of the sort of push in Melbourne was the, you know, fill the G kind of gimmick for the final. But, you know, you did see a lot more advertising around. There was a, a bit more kind of interest in, in the women's game being generated from that. There was It felt like there was a buzz around the tournament, whereas this in Sydney, you know, before I left, I'd 
saw absolutely nothing advertising the World Cup. And that was only like, what, three months or so ago? So, you know, you'd think three months before the tournament, you should be at least starting to advertise it. And yeah, just nothing. And I don't, I don't know. Some, it just seems that sometimes Australia, they just kind of expect that because it's in Australia, they people are going to turn up, which, you know, you, you need to actually mention to people that it's going to be on because Australian cricket fans, you know, we, we know the test match is on, you know, every summer and there's the Boxing Day test and the Brisbane test and what have you. But in terms of ICC events, you got to kind of prod Australians to sort of notice that they're happening. And yeah, so that was a bit disappointing is that the atmosphere, I guess, for the main tournament, if you want to call it that, seems to be lacking. And I guess maybe having it in smaller towns, uh, at least for, for some of the games, is a better way to go because, you know, these, these cities are going to make more of an effort to promote events that don't necessarily happen very often. Yeah, no, no we haven't got on to Geelong yet, but to that sort of comment, I think seeing the way that the coverage would sort of zero in on the fan zones and go and talk to the, the five kids in the in the crowd, I thought it was a, a great opportunity there to consider taking it to a, a more country ground. I know that Geelong is a, is a regional centre. Um, I'm sort of thinking of, I think it was Bendigo, wasn't it, in uh, in 1992? And I think that's going way back in uh, in time. I think Mackay got a game as well. Yeah, as well. That to, um, and and as it sounds very cliche but to be bussing in school kids you know that not not all these games are on the on the weekend and here's a great chance for kids to get in in a because of controlled atmosphere in a ground that's not going to be packed and you can actually have them really enjoying their time there and from a an optics point of view you can frame that perfectly if you've got 200 school kids there on the on the hill or in the seats that will only cost uh, a few buses and some uh, and some sandwiches so it was just sort of interesting to see that byplay in a place like Hobart and, and Geelong as well you know we haven't talked about group A yet we sort of think you know you'd rather see hundreds of school kids than you know the the fan center out, outside and you know you could argue you, you should be able to sell tickets to the main group games the uh, super 12 games rather than than early on so there's an opportunity to do things a little bit different so just yeah it did feel a, a little a little samey and sort of wondering if if putting something in Cadinia Park um, again which we haven't spoken about yet is was optimal when you could have gone maybe far north Queensland and had conditions that were a bit, little bit more favorable and grounds that would be filled up and be, be a good size and saying that you know we did see you know up to sort of 10 15,000 Sri Lankan fans sort of getting in there and then and then filtering out again but again at no stage did the did the stadium look full uh, how did you see it on the ground there, Daniel? So I think that once the, the matches started, there wasn't too much hype beforehand in terms of, you know, around town for advertising for what I saw. But as soon as the games get going, I think everyone in town starts to realise what's going on because it's a small place and, and everyone congregates in the same sorts of areas. And in particular, I thought one of the best things about it was the ferry um, and Derwent Ferries put on specific boats for the games with all sorts of departure times which takes you straight across the harbour within sort of 10 minutes walk of the ground and they were they waited for the the last fans to come there at the end even though the schedule said 10 30 they actually stuck around until 11 15 in order to get everyone back over and created a bit of a sort of party vibe actually like the boat was fantastic and there's a lot of fans on it you meet a lot of fans on on the way over and because of that the locals in town started to kind of get into it a bit more they were always asking oh you're here for the cricket and I think that a lot of the people around were very aware that it was on after the first game or so I definitely think more could have been done and as you say I think the crowds themselves show that the locals perhaps were not aware of it and you know weeks months in advance but definitely once it was there and also the fact that it's the same teams for 
for five days you know you you get the irish supporters from melbourne um we actually i bumped into mentioned to you guys much bumped into some supporters of the podcast uh, including a patron in the stands one came down from uh, north tasmania and one from uh from melbourne i believe to you know because there's a few games in a row and you can really justify the going to a place like this. Um, so it was definitely a, a good atmosphere after a while and a lot of the, the players and support staff, you know, supported the local businesses and you'd see the island kit and the, the cafe that's got Irish signs on and all the players were, you know, getting involved a bit. So it was actually quite a good atmosphere, I found. Did you feel like were, the crowds were growing each game day? A little bit, yeah. I think certainly... There, there were they were growing in the sense that there were overall more people, but I think the atmosphere perhaps was very much dominated by how many in the little fan sections, and that was very much controlled by the Zimbabwean fans, uh, who did a very good job, and there was about 150 of them, particularly for that last game, all sat in the same area. The other groups of fans were, were there, but I think less coordinated and organised. The Zimbabweans had song sheets and, and drums and a few other things, and it was it was really good. And actually, I think the, you know, leaning into my, my actual profession, the acoustics of, of the ground were pretty good. You, you know, you can make a lot of noise from not a lot of people, although... I have to say the playing music after every single ball thing I was not big on <laughs> from the PA. <laughs> it's all right after the end of an over, but they were, you know, turning the tunes up after every single ball, which I thought um, was a bit much. Uh, there was definitely some fans filtering in, a uh, few more on the on the Friday in particular, because um, I believe it was school holidays, actually. Yeah, I, I feel... I, I have to agree with you. I went to a big bash game when I was living in Brisbane and I, I did find the music after every single ball quite jarring. It doesn't quite hit you on the on the broadcast the same way, but when you're at the ground and you think, is this what kids today want? They <laughs> want to be yelled at after, after every ball? Am I out of touch? <laughs> I think I remember they trialled it at Eden Park here once and it got, I just remember it getting a lot of backlash and it, it never came back again in New Zealand. Maybe it's bigger in Australia, maybe that's why they tried it here. Um, it was yeah, it was definitely quite noticeable and yeah, I guess you're trying to create an atmosphere but it, it wasn't wasn't spot on for me. You know, Daniel, you talked about running into the, the Irish fans, they definitely had a, a lot to be cheering about. I think maybe those that listen to the podcast may have heard that you know we've been impressed with Ireland's T20i form, especially in the last six to 12 months which I guess speak very differently of their shortest format form before that but they came home with I don't think you'd have to say a wet sail but uh, with a great win against the West Indies West Indies losing matches against both Scotland and Ireland both North Northern Hemisphere teams down there in in Hobart Nick how did you see Ireland yeah, Ireland's an interesting one. I sort of thought they wouldn't make it through. In our predictions with Bez, we were kind of saying they could win all three or lose all three. They ended up doing something in between, but they, yeah. Where where did that innings from Andy Balburnie come from? You know, he'd been sort of scratching around all 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 group stage so far, and then he comes out and blasts it at 160 plus strike rate. Where did that innings from Curtis Camper come from? You know, he's been kind of pretty uh, pedestrian well for a while really for Ireland in in the shortest format and again he just turns up with a magical innings against um, <laughs> against Scotland taking advantage of some some pretty tame bowling but uh, you know you still got to hit him so yeah Ireland they they just have that capacity with some of their players to just produce a a, a magical moment every now and then and and I don't know quite what it is about this team but you know you still feel like they could be better and and they're still quite a messy team you know a, a lot of their kind of innings have, have been sort of yeah very much blowing hot and cold um their bowling has been also quite 
uh, inconsistent, <laughs> I guess you could say, with some pretty mediocre performances and and some uh, some very good bowling. You know, all, all their bowls went at over seven and over, so no one was really keeping a lid on things. But at the same time, they just managed to pick up wickets at crucial moments and and get themselves over the line. And um, as you discussed before, the the batting was what really saved them. Which I mean, really for Ireland, that's pretty unusual because they're batting a lot of the time in in the recent years has been quite fragile. So the, the fact that it's all come together and um, <laughs> we, we've had guys like Balburnie and Dockrell and Camper and Sterling, of course, all scoring runs has meant that Ireland was able to kind of cover up the, the issues with their bowling. Um, so, yeah, quite an interesting performance from Ireland. I'll, I'll be following them with great interest in the, uh, the main event because, you know, if they can put it together, I think they can trouble any of the teams here. But, yeah, they'll need to just be consistent. Yeah, I've I found that like as you say, they could win all three or lose all three. I think they lost the first one and three quarters, and then somehow won it out of absolutely nowhere, and then just carried on from there. And I, I have to say that the island support were were definitely down and out at the point where that's that began and that was actually where i did go and join them and i did bump into our patron who was sitting with the island supporters um because i was you know i'd, I'd written a bit and i thought oh we're coasting we being scotland let's go for a walk <laughs> and wandered around to the island support and it kind of it didn't seem to come like bursting out of the blocks they just suddenly had a period where they were getting singles every ball and then i think curtis camfra didn't have a dot ball for 20 balls or something like that and it really just you'd look at the scoreboard and go oh okay actually no they've come completely back and it yeah it was completely remarkable um because they just in the first half of that innings even they didn't look like they knew how to find gaps and were just looking like they didn't have a plan and i think that was what i said about them in the first game is it it, it didn't scream like they they had like a methodology about how to cut up the the chase or the the bowling either and then suddenly from that point camphor you know almost single-handedly obviously got good support from george dockle as well you know pulls them back and then the momentum from that just goes into the final game and sterling and balburnie in particular uh, balburnie hit some of the cleanest sixes i think i've ever seen that innings um it, it you know, it was a completely different team. And it's like, at one point, while I was not paying attention because I was walking around the ground, they just switched on. And, you know, hopefully they can continue to switch on, you know, moving into the second stage. Well, it is the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Be remiss of us not to talk about the West Indies. If you read the press, people and pundits were expecting them to go through and win this event because they've won two World Cups before, but it was not to be. Not only did they lose their first match against Scotland, they lost their final match against Ireland. Who wants to review the West Indies performance? Daniel, you were there. I, I think that it was a team that wasn't really sure how to go about these games, a bit like Ireland as well. They clearly had some individuals who could pull fantastic performances out of absolutely nothing. I think in particular, their bowling unit, Alzari Joseph, just still can bowl so quick and can really you know, trouble some of these associate batters who have not faced guys bowling 146 as he was clocked at one point. <laughs> and you know it, that does make a big difference but there was a 
a kind of despondencies of the team, particularly as soon as they got behind. I think in that opening game against Scotland, they were ahead for decent chunks of the game. And but when Scotland were under the pump in that game, they found a way out. You know, George Munsey put in some changed his game plan and, and actually ground out an innings. Whereas when Scotland got ahead with the spinners in particular and Michael Leask having a fantastic supporting role um, behind Mark Watt. Mark Watt obviously we know is incredible and has been doing it for a long time. But I think Leask doing that from both ends and West Indies just had no answer to that. They they weren't comfortable trying to plod around and get out the other side like Munsey had and ended up capitulating. And it did feel like a bit of a, you know, this is a team in transition in terms of moving on from the superstars or the, the you know, the squad that they had last time in the UAE, which was very much players who don't normally play for them being shipped in. And maybe there's a bit of an identity crisis. They're not sure how to go forward. And this isn't the right time to kind of have those you know, soul-searching questions about a team when you're trying to progress in a tournament. And Ireland and Scotland just took advantage of that. Yeah, especially when your results, you know, you, you can't have a slow start when you've only got a group of four, can you? You know, even with two teams going through, as we've seen, lose two games and and you're out. Nick, have you got anything to add there? I think Daniel covered it pretty well. The only thing I would really add is that the West Indies, the, the fact that they're being regularly beaten by these um, lower-ranked, you know, associates slash emerging teams, um, Ireland can can be in that category for you know for, for the old days' sake. But they, you know, the fact they are regularly losing to these teams shows that there's nothing to be afraid of really come next year with the World Cup qualifier. We all know what happened with Scotland and 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 the West Indies last time. Uh, but you know, looking ahead to that qualifier, assuming the West Indies will probably be there i'm not 100 percent on all the the permutations of you know run rates and, and points but assuming the west indies are there m- you know most of the other associates slash emerging teams who are also there shouldn't have anything to fear from this group of players um yeah as you say joseph very good bowler jason holder very good bowler you know they they, they did bowl well but aside from that even you know even Obert mccoy had a pretty average time of it and you know he's one of the kind of star bowlers so yeah i mean n- nothing to be afraid of for the for the lower ranked teams in the west indies and i guess conversely the kind of nostalgia um <laughs> uh, the nostalgia factory that is caribbean cricket uh, is still going strong and now we've got to the stage where people are kind of pining for the lost glory days of their t20 dominance rather than the the lost glory days of their test dominance so that's kind of interesting to see Moving on, and speaking of dominance, Mark Watts for Scotland. How long is it until we see him get a big-time franchise contract? Because I think if you had any major full member crest on his left breast, he would be playing, I don't know, anything as, as high as IPL. But hopefully the performances in the event so far and, and prior get him a gig. As they kept like telling us, as they being the commentators, he doesn't get a lot of turn, but his variety of pace type of spin on the ball and where he bowls in the crease whether it's wide whether it's close or whether it's two meters behind the bowling crease I think he was Scotland's best player and it's always hard when he can only bowl four overs to make as much impact as a perhaps as a top order batter can but uh, Daniel you saw it live in the flesh how good was was Mark Watt and uh, who were the best people supporting him I think that like I've watched a lot of Mark Watt um, uh, for Scotland and for Harriet's my club in Scotland, um, and he's one of those guys who you you don't really know how he does it until you really pay attention and you spot the subtle differences and you spot how intelligently he thinks about it because logically 
it doesn't really make sense. He's a he's a spinner that doesn't turn it, and yet no one can hit him. And I think the thing that really sticks out is when you see him play, not at club level, but at international level, and there's a speed gun, you realise he's bowling 107, and he's just got this really quite quick action that he can change, you know, without too much effort. A bit like how when Rashid Khan first burst onto the scene, it was all about how he could change speed so quickly, and, and Watt's got that in his locker, and bowling flat, and also from the additional distance as he does so often with his behind the umpire ball it makes it bounce even flatter and uh, you know for for a lot of these these batters are trying to you know pick singles off when it comes at out so quick so much quicker and so much flatter than what you're expecting you don't have the time to think and by the time you've hit the ball you've hit it straight to the fielder and you've not got your single um in terms of the the contracts i think that that is one of the great sadnesses of him not getting through to the next round or scotland not getting through to the next round because i think you know, five more games or whatever it would be against top sides uh, in a big audience would have probably sold a lot of people on his ability. And I think that he will get some some gigs in T20s next year. He's obviously been playing for Derby and, and the English County system uh, last year. Um, but I, I even think that IPL is a big big name but there are so many other leagues now you know I think that he could absolutely do a job in the New Zealand Super Smash if he wants to you know lower his standards a bit but for sure he he really is the one where you know when Scotland is thinking about you know maybe they're under a bit of pressure you can absolutely at least if you're not going to get a you know three or four run over off him you're going to get some kind of pressure that might cause a mistake from the from the opposition and I think also, as I mentioned, I think uh, Michael Lesk deserves a mention because, you know, he's never really been considered a top bowler like Watt and he's often asked to do the same role to kind of tandem up and, and put pressure on. And in the past, he's come up short because it's quite a difficult, you know, following that is quite difficult. But I actually think particularly in that opening game, he was as good as Mark Watt was. And, and they do this, they do similar thing from obviously different bowling styles. And I actually think that Hamza Tahir is getting good at it as well. And it's a pity that he wasn't selected. I could understand the three seamers. And I think that the questions of who you would leave out uh, and whether or not three spinners in a place like Hobart is a good idea. But the fact that they are probably three of Scotland's best bowlers if you're not grouping based on style of bowling means that I think Tahir potentially should have gone a game and it maybe was just the knockout nature of the last game that they weren't going to gamble like that. Yeah, that was something I kind of wondered because, you know, you, you look at the success that Watt had and that Leesk had, especially in that game against West Indies where all the other seamers all went at sort of 8, 9 and over. And yeah, I guess, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty and all that. Sharif had a shocking tournament, probably could have replaced him with Tahir for one of the games. Uh, Josh Davey I've never been very impressed with. I mean, I'd probably select Tahir over Davey, you know, most days of the week, to be honest. I, I just, I don't think I've ever really seen Josh Davey dominate an attack with the ball. He, he's just at best kind of a trundling medium pacer. <laughs> yeah, so I was I was kind of a, a bit bewildered that they didn't have Tahir in there because, you know, him and what tying up two ends, there you go, that's eight overs of, you know, going five and a half, six and over, uh, and you can kind of build around that and, and, and restrict opponents to a, a much more gettable total, which, so that's a winning model for a T20 side. And yeah, so I, I think it was a bit strange that, that Tahir didn't get a game at least there's always a bit of an anti-spinner bias isn't there you know just you, you're not allowed to have three spinners but you are always allowed to have three seamers well yeah if you have three seamers and one of them goes at nine and over no one cares but if you have three spinners and one of them goes at nine and over people are asking why you have three spinners yeah and in the the island game that you mentioned between davy and sharif seven overs one for 78 
uh, and they were the two most expensive bowlers. So you, you go back in time and yes, hindsight, wonderful. But uh, if you break the mould and perhaps go with three frontline spinners... Who knows what could happen, especially, as you said, seeing how the wicket was playing and the bowlers that were able to play with their place and cross-seam balls, I mean, from good medium pace bowlers, you know, it's similar to when spinners are able to bowl well on that as well. But uh, but yes, after beating West Indies and then falling down, I guess we move to Group A, where Namibia probably broke our hearts, if we're honest, after beating Sri Lanka in their first game and hopes being high that they'd be able to fly through. And I'm sorry about the, the eagle pun there. <laughs> Nick, we saw Sri Lanka stumble and then and then come back. We saw Namibia start strong and then stumble. And we saw the Netherlands probably, I don't know, I wouldn't say that was stumbling the whole way through, but they, they definitely weren't at a uh, at a clop and, and sneak into, into second place. How did you see Group A, Cardinia Park, Geelong? Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about the crowds and whatnot a little bit as well. And, and so that's one aspect in the atmosphere being pretty dead i mean it is geelong what <laughs> what do you expect in a way but um yeah namibia gee they really wasted a golden opportunity to to progress this is an interesting and i guess I'll, I'll i'll get your opinions on this because my belief with namibia is that they're probably the associate with the highest ceiling at the moment in terms of their you know capacity if everyone has a good day but allied to that is that they're not very consistent and they sometimes just play inexplicably badly and just go awol which happened here a couple of times. But the counterpoint from, from Burtis de Jong is that he thinks they're kind of actually overachievers and they maximize their talent with good plans and, and, and captaincy from Erasmus and good fielding and everyone knows their role and, and plays well. So I'm, I'm interested in to see uh, what you guys think of that kind of question. It's always good to, uh, to come back at the other two. It's like this counter counterpoint re-hosting. Um, I, I, I think... You know, it's it's a fair point that we saw Namibia, even in that first game against Sri Lanka, they were down and out or at least really up against the wall. And if it wasn't from that, that rear guard action from Freilink and our man JJ Smith, you know, they're bundled out for sort of 120, 130. And we, we probably aren't even having this conversation. We're sort of saying the tournament that that could have been for Namibia. But the difference is they have that talent down there I don't think we would have picked Frylink as the bat that was going to come in and, and, and save them but you know we saw him then be promoted up to number five in the next match and obviously he's highly thought of and that performance sort of showed that maybe he had a little bit more than, than what we'd seen in the past and likewise in, in, in game one I don't think we would have been picking uh, Chicago to be the, the chief destroyer at the, the top of the order we sort of lament his sort of lack of opportunity and, and maybe inconsistency in performances before but yeah I, I think Burtis's point is fair considering what we saw from their top order in a team that was trying to go through or at least favourites after winning you know it was pretty poor it was almost like we we're just waiting to the point that Erasmus came in and, and then that the, the innings got going you almost got caretakers at the top and we've talked about Zane Green being tried at the top before but he's been struggling the last few years years and the role that he, he could have played I, I just found some of those not, not tactics so so much but thinking that they could have played a little bit differently at the top end and we sort of talked about the tactics of, of in particular Ireland um, and how I think there's still room for them to get better with the use of their bowlers and and perhaps not just keeping keeping in certain bowlers in, in or keeping them on that are going for 10 and 15 runs and over. I remember that spell from McCarthy when he went for 50 off, off four when there were other bowlers who hadn't hadn't bowled and Sterling who hasn't bowled. It felt a little bit similar with the with Namibia and some of the bowling changes or at least bowling tactics. For example, you know, JJ Smith about getting his line and lengths right rather than just being hittable. It was, I can see both sides of the argument really. So it's, I'm going to give you a bit of a middle answer in saying that they, I think they overachieve in the sense that when they play well, 
well, they play really well and the tactics really come off. But when they don't play well, they, they leave you, you scratching your head a bit. Daniel, how do you see it? I, I, I do kind of agree with that. That's somewhere in the middle because there is there's some praise to be had with the way that they use lower order firepower and you know they know that that's one of their strengths with a few you know big hitters down the lower order but then in the in the final game it becomes a question of you know what is David Visa doing at number seven you know when he nearly won them that game and you know really should he have come in a bit earlier if he's going to be performing at that level and a lot of that top order really didn't feel in any of those games like they were going to get off to you know a big start and then you start seeing these numbers from Smith and and, and Visa down the order and the tactics about the way that they go about that start to come into question but obviously when it came off like it did in in the first game bailing them out you know they're they're geniuses but when it doesn't it's uh, they, they can look a bit silly. Yeah, the Namibian top order is one, there's uh, there's just so much going on there. You know, they've got three sort of technically solid compact openers in, in Bard, Van Lingen and Lecoq. And which of those do you play? You can't really play all three, but they tried to play all three, which I think was probably a mistake. Realistically, you only need one kind of solid technically compact guy at the top to you know hold up an end or whatever. Van Lingen, I think, is probably the best candidate to be told just basically get a move on you know he's got all the shots he just kind of gets a little bit bogged down at times and you know if he can find that way of of clicking earlier i think he'll be very effective as a t20 batter he's already uh, quite effective in 50 over cricket because he has a bit more time to settle in bard i think is you know fine as that kind of you know solid guy at the top role and then getting into middle order we've got young nicole lofty eaton who i think is one of the most absurdly talented cricketers anywhere in the world really at the moment you know he he can hit it a mile he bowls leg spin when you know <laughs> when erasmus hands him the ball uh he can keep wickets you know he he's he's just a ridiculous talent but they they haven't really got the best out of him uh he sort of flashed briefly against uh, against sri lanka with with a couple of maximums there but yeah they, they just haven't really figured out what to do with him i think um and then yeah i mean erasmus Erasmus had a pretty bad tournament, well, if we're honest. Um, I think he didn't get above 20 in any of his innings, so that certainly didn't help. But then, you know, then we're getting down into their, um, you know, middle lower order firepower of Freilink, JJ Smith, obviously, and, and David Visa. And yeah, why do they come in so late? I, th- I think that is something that they need to look at. I've never really been sold on that approach i know it's a deliberate strategy of kind of bringing them in around the maybe sort of 15 16 over mark and just cutting loose but i i, I don't know I, I just feel like you should be getting your bigger hitters in earlier if especially if as as they have done a lot of the time they haven't really had anyone going hard at the top of the order you know do you shuffle that around a bit i think Lofty Eaton as an opener is is a pretty good option. He has done that before and and had some success domestically, at least uh, in in Namibia. Frylink, yeah, again, I'm not convinced that Frylink is a (laughs) a number five middle order bat. Um, I think his best role is more down the order as as kind of a, a later innings hitter rather than a kind of middle order stability man which is sort of what he was doing which yeah i don't know that that's i think slightly overextending him as a batter um he's you know he's a good player a very useful all-rounder but yeah i think number five is probably just a bridge too far for him plus then of course he absolutely barbecued jj smith um in, in that run out against the uae but that's that's another problem entirely uh, yeah, so yeah, I just feel like Namibia's batting approach. We saw this against the Netherlands. It just they end up leaving runs on the table when you're getting JJ Smith coming in with you know one over to go and he makes five off 
three deliveries or whatever it was against the Netherlands, that's a waste of resources because, you know, JJ Smith and, and David Visa are your two biggest and best hitters and getting them in with so little time is just a, a dereliction of duty, really. Um, and that kind of, you know, 10, 15 maybe runs that they leave on the table by doing that, in my opinion, that was the difference against the Netherlands, you know, just a, just a few more runs against the Netherlands and they would have they would have been able to um, even absorb that hit the, of, of the big over from, from Vikram Singh. They could have absorbed that a bit better and, and kept the pressure up. So, yeah, this approach from Nimbibira works very, very well in 50-over cricket, but maybe needs a bit of reassessment in T20 cricket. Yeah, I, I look at it and I just think that that top three, as you mentioned, and uh, Lofty Eaton, talented, yes, but we haven't seen the best of him at this level yet and whether he goes to open or stays at three. But, I, you know, see, Zane Green as we've talked about in the past and when he struggled to sort of get the ball off the square when he's trying to go too hard, he could have played a similar role to Van Lingen or Bard and then given Namibia another option to pick either a, a batter, middle-order batter or an all-rounder or, or various other options. And I, and I keep seeing Trump them down the order and just think, is that someone who could open the innings and do what he does in the lower order but do it during the power play and take advantage of those first six overs yeah interesting call and then you can always reassess if you if you lose a couple of wickets you know although it's 20 overs you're still a, a bit of time there to, to reassess and to consolidate if, if required and I just think if you know I'm, I'm not trying to be the coach here but just thinking about that those issues that we've seen where you've almost had these two or three not so much walking wickets but putting the team under pressure and then that means you could still give enough time and space to Frylink, Smith and Visa as to when they come in and time it right because I think we saw uh, a couple of partnerships there with Erasmus there when he was sort of struggling around and to the point where Visa only came in with I think it was 10 balls to go and hit a couple of boundaries uh, in that, that game against the Netherlands. You could just see it was... <laughs> You know, the timing was terrible and I think there was quite a few people saying this is the chance to retire these batters and get your two big hitters in because if you don't you could really leave a lot, a lot of runs on the table so I guess the upside from what we're saying is there's still opportunities for them to do things better or to be to be cleverer in that they're not getting everything out of this team because we've seen you know as you said Erasmus you know we, we've seen him play better with a busted finger and you, you sort of wonder is it uh, formulated or is he having issues with the finger again or, or what because it it wasn't the same player I think that we've seen in the past both in the World Cup and, and tournaments prior so I just hope it's temporary and we see the best of him again because you know this podcast and and, uh, and this masthead as they say you know we talk about him as as being one of the the classiest batters in 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 world cricket when when he's on and and just needs a platform relief to perform and unfortunately uh, he didn't find it this time in australia but the team that inevitably knocked them out the uae who i think it's fair to say came under a lot of questioning from us and others as to selection and game tactics both around the new captain um to the leaving out of Roman Mustafa from the touring party completely and then the non-selection of former captain Armin Raza until the last game. And although he only bowled the one over for nine in, in that match was the one match that, that UAE won. Daniel, how would you summarise UAE's tournament? Well, the only game I really paid too much attention to was the final one, actually. So I, I, I was watching that in a pub with the Test Match special crew, um, who, as they alerted me, had heard of us. Um, so uh, as Bez says, uh, we are massive. And they were looking like they were struggling in that one, too, for a decent part of it as well. Uh, they were trundling along at less than five and over, and really it just came out of nowhere in the, at the end, and they found a way against, uh, you know, a 
Namibia team that, as we just discussed, had, you know, tactical issues of their own. But it did sort of feel like they were going through the motions a bit um, in some of it, particularly in, in the field. And, you know, I think some of the behind the scenes turmoil is maybe not the right word, but, you know, uncertainty with the selection did make it feel like this wasn't the same team that qualified and therefore they were already aware that they weren't going to cut the mustard at that level because, you know, they were missing some players for whatever reason and uh, weren't quite up to it, particularly in the conditions at Geelong, although in a way that pitch was a little bit subcontinental in the the slowness of it. But, you know, finding a way to get a win at the end will, will do some good for them, but I think it was that win was almost more on Namibia than, than them, I felt. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think, especially towards the back end with the bowling, Erasmus, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if he got his sums wrong or, or something because JJ Smith is not a death bowler. He's mm. he's a guy who kind of gets it back of a length, maybe gets a bit of cut, get a bit of movement, probably more in the middle overs or, or even potentially opening. But yeah, he's not a death bowler. He doesn't have the the tools to be a death bowler. And I think the fact that he ended up having to bowl the last over, just uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what happened there because, you know, Visa and Trumpelman, that's a good death over combination. So how Erasmus managed to, to get that ended up, I, I'm not sure. I, I know we're talking about the UAE, but, you know, Chicago took one wicket and then got yanked straight out of the attack, which I don't know, that's a bit strange. I know he was disastrous against the Netherlands, so potentially Erasmus was a bit shy of giving him the last over, but surely he could just give him another over and yeah, I don't know. Anyway, but um, yeah, UAE, the, the off-field disruption is one thing. Um, I think missing Rohan Mustafa, I know we've talked about it a lot, but in that game against the Netherlands and even against Namibia, which they did win, you know, Rohan Mustafa... He's the guy who scraps and, and gives his all and, and you know, never gives up until the very last ball is bowled. And he, his sort of presence, even if he didn't necessarily, um, you know, hit 50 off 20 or whatever, like just his presence, both with the bat and the ball, I think against the Netherlands especially would have made a huge difference because they just looked very flat and didn't have that sort of fighting spirit that Rohan Mustafa really, that that's Mustafa's strength is that he just always believes he can do something to get his team over the line. And a lot of the time he does, uh, you know, he produces a uh, uh, classy innings with the bat or he, you know, just gets a breakthrough uh, where no one else is. And they didn't have that. They didn't have that magic moment producing player that, that Rohan Mustafa can be. And so they really missed that, especially against the Netherlands where it ended up being pretty close. And, and Mustafa, I think probably would have made the difference. Yeah. I don't know. Looking elsewhere, Zahur Khan was very tidy, uh, going at sort of fives um, with with the ball. Junaid Siddiqui, <laughs> he, he wrecked the Netherlands. Um, and uh, we, we can say that we liked Kartik Mayapan before it was cool. Um, and yeah, he, he bowled very well. And it's nice to see him getting a bit of um, time in the sun because he's been uh, sort of a, a great prospect for the UAE for... Yeah, about about a year or so. Um, uh, yeah, Basil Basil Hamid even burgled a couple with his offies against Namibia. I think probably Ahmed Raza should have been bowling more, but again, we've talked about that a lot. Yeah, so this this UAE team just a bit of a mess, really. The the whole campaign and and the whole team, they're just. I think Robin Singh's position realistically is untenable, but. I don't know what the sort of politics are behind the scenes in, in terms of him and his job, but I don't think he's really doing a good enough job. I mean, he's another one of those part-time coaches and, and he's sort of off doing IPL stuff or whatever and, and he kind of comes in and out and they try and schedule their series around him and, you know, that's 
disruptive even at the best of times and then yeah we, we get into the strange decisions around Mustafa and and um and Ahmed Raza but uh yeah anyway on a, on an unrelated note actually this is we just saw this the other day uh, Ahmed Raza announced the birth of his daughter Isa Kazmi so congratulations to Ahmed Raza for that at least um yeah and I guess um looking across to the Netherlands who did manage to sort of squeak across the line against the UAE and squeak across the line against Namibia. You know, they obviously, they're in the second round. They did enough to to get there. So, you know, congratulations to them. I just think, yeah, they weren't particularly convincing in either of those wins. And then even against Sri Lanka in the group match, I mean, they looked like they could have maybe got there, but they, I don't know. It's just this Netherlands team batting, I think, is kind of a huge problem for them. If you you look at the... the (laughs) The, the top order, they've got Max O'Dowd at the top who batted very well, especially in that game against Sri Lanka where he hit uh, 70-odd and carried his bat, maybe? Uh, is it carried your bat if your team isn't fully bowled out in 2020 cricket? I can never remember the exact... Not quite. I think he was threatening it, um, but it would have required someone else to get out. I think I, the the number was that it's only actually happened in a proper carry-the-bat sense once, and it was Chris Oh, Gale. yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> So it is a very, very niche it's a sort of stat to pull off, and perhaps not one you want to be a part of, unlike in test matches, because it requires your, the rest of your team to do rubbish. Uh, yes, well, the rest of his team did basically do rubbish. Um, and, uh, and didn't get a whole lot of support against Sri Lanka, and that kind of really has, was the problem for them in that whole first round, is that there's, uh, you know, Max out at the top, Vikram Singh can be good at the top. Um, has He really showed his development with some impressive, cool headed batting as well but you know between kind of three and seven there's just a black hole of incompetence in their batting order and Colin Ackerman yeah has he done a whole lot for the Netherlands recently I I can't think of that he scored 80 against Afghanistan in one of the ODIs they played a little while back Um, but yeah he didn't really produce in this group stage which uh was was pretty disappointing because he's kind of the linchpin there in the middle for them um and then you know going down the order power hitting where normally someone like a pete zaylar would come in or, or roller fundamover um obviously pete zaylar's retired due to persistent back injuries and <laughs> or old roloff also has a back injury so he uh wasn't able to to really fill that role either so now they've kind of got two problems in that their their <laughs> their middle order is almost non-existent and their sort of power hitting at the back end has been uh, severely hampered as well so their batting is a lot of question marks there it's sort of the opposite of Namibia where Namibia's questions are at the top and the Netherlands questions are below that their bowling was was mostly okay but yeah they, I, I think they sort of accidentally stumbled into the next round more than uh, more than were convincing yeah it, it did sort of feel like they they got in by measure of being in the middle the whole time whilst everyone around them either had fantastic performances or awful performances mm. and yeah, when, when we had those first sort of two games and you looked at the table and in, in, in Hobart everyone had beaten everyone else and, and you looked and you go oh the Netherlands have won both of their games and you know it didn't really feel like they had set the world alight with that and you always knew that you know there was a chance that in the final game their toughest game coming last it would all unravel for them and and for the most part it looked like it, it had and it really was just a complete stroke of luck slash misfortune depending which which angle you look at it that they managed to sneak in ahead of Namibia based on uh, a result that gave the UAE effectively just you know a, a feel good when they go home but it definitely did seem like you know a couple of very tight results those those wins were and 
they, they found a way to get over the line almost because the opposition kept giving them opportunities to get back into it and weren't completely taking it uh, by the scruff either. And obviously, you know, there are some pretty big holes going into the second round that you'd hope they'd try and, you know, find a way to, to fill up. And Ackerman's an interesting one because I think he's been given quite a long rope because he has... Been, been proven in domestic level in, in England and is you know a bit of a journeyman there and it feels like that role that he plays in the T20s there could be replicated for the Dutch but it just hasn't really clicked yet for him there and and you know definitely without someone like that in the middle order you're going to struggle when one of your top order doesn't work and, and even Max O'Dowd feels like he takes a while to get into things as well and if he's he's scratching around at the top even though he did end up doing well against the best bowling lineup in that group the, from Sri Lanka, it took a while for him to really get into it and and start to look like his slow starts have been worthwhile. So I think there is definitely a lot for them to work out, but I think these games against top sides will do, as the Super League games did as well, You know, do a lot for, for helping them work that out and seeing how they can perform against some, some good teams. Yeah, no, I touched on that with Basta later, but, you know, that experience that he did have over the Dutch summer with uh, all those matches they played against four members, I think that really shows he's he's a much better cricketer now. And we saw that in the match against Namibia where he um, everyone was sort of collapsing around him and he kept a cool head and managed to guide them over the line in a, a chase that, I mean, really, Namibia no business being that close and taking it to the final over. But that kind of goes back to what we were saying about Namibia in that they, they do try and, you know, they maximize their talent, they scrap, they fight. And, and we see that even when the Netherlands were totally cruising at, what, like two for 100 or something. Even then, the Namibians managed to fight their way back in and, and yeah, take it to, I think, within a couple of balls uh, in the last over. But Bastelader was there the whole time. He watched, uh, you know, three or four other batters come and go, but he managed to just keep keep it calm. I mean, because the run rate wasn't very high mm. and everyone was sort of panicking, <laughs> Delater just, uh, yeah, kept his head, rotated the strike and, and got them over the line. And, and that innings, that 30-odd he hit against Namibia, I was very impressed with that, precisely because more senior players like Tom Cooper, Holland Ackerman were, you know, losing their head and, and playing silly shots and getting out, whereas, uh, yeah, Delater just did what was necessary. And so, yeah, that, that experience that you talked about the, over the, the Dutch summer, once again, we come back to the cancelling the Super League and the fact that the Netherlands or probably any associate will never be able to have a schedule like that ever again, basically, mm-hmm. unless, you know, something pretty dramatic changes at the ICC board level. And yeah, it just shows the benefits of having that structure and, and giving these teams who are on the fringes just more opportunities. And yeah, as soon as we see the, the benefits of that, it gets taken away, which is yeah pretty typical ICC decision-making, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think that, that knocked the... And most of these, uh, you know, the games at Geelong were kind of quite low scoring and and the ODI 50 over mentality and and I think Delater's probably more built for that than he is for T20s and you know when you're under pressure and and the pitch isn't 
coming on and you're not going to be able to just you know force runs it does require a bit of a you know a steady head and I think yeah the experience from playing a lot of 50 over cricket would have would have helped out there and it's one of those ones where it could go very wrong if they you know keep believing that because we're playing t20 we can just give it a bash and eventually someone's going to come off sometimes you just need to accept that you can just just push it until you get the five and over you don't need to actually work that hard for it a huge thank you again to Daniel Hay, who watched all the action in Group B in Hobart, as well as Tim and Nick covering the first round. We'll have a look at the Super 12 stage on next week's show. Plenty of action for the Netherlands, as well as the likes of Ireland and others. So stick around for that next week. A uh, huge thank you once again to our patrons for making all of this possible and enjoy all the emerging cricket going on in the next seven days.